0: nothing can separate you. God is for you. You have a high priest and there is a love from which nothing can separate you. Let's take a look. First, God is for you. Look at verse 31 of the passage. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? These things refers to all of Romans. He's summarizing the book up till this point. And then he says, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Now, it's interesting that Paul asked the question that way, isn't it? Because if he said simply, who can be against us? Well, we would have had a lot of ways that we could have answered that question, couldn't we? There are lots of things that are against you. Sometimes there are other people who are against you. These might be annoying colleagues or these might be overt enemies. But there are people in our life that make life difficult. Sometimes other people are against us. There's also what you might describe circumstances or situations that are against us. There's financial hardship. There's losing a job or missing out on a promotion. Maybe there's a relationship that you were hoping to see come to fruition, but it hasn't, or one that's breaking down. Many of you, how about this situation? Many of you right now, you know, summer is a time in which many people leave our city and many people come to our city And right now, some of you are looking forward over the next couple of weeks about having to move away from London. And even if you're moving to something exciting, it's hard to say goodbye to community, to family, and to friends. It's hard It can feel against you. So sometimes it's other people. Sometimes it's situations. Sometimes it's illness. Especially if any of you have had a loved one or you yourself have faced any kind of chronic illness, you know how hard it is to live with that. Day after day to feel like your body or the body of someone that you love is an adversary because it's not working the way that it should. We also have what you might call spiritual realities. The Bible's clear that there is a spiritual realm and for the people of God, there's an enemy sometimes called the devil or Satan or the evil one and he's against you, trying to thwart and destroy God's purposes in your life. And then finally, sometimes you are your own worst enemy. I mean, how many things in your life have you wanted to do or to be or to accomplish and you feel like you keep getting in your own way? Habits that you want to shake that you can't, things that you want to accomplish, but you don't feel like you have the time or the resources or the energy. You just feel like you're getting in your own way all the time. So had Paul asked the question, who can be against us? We could say this or that or them or this possible. But he says, no, if God is for us, who can be against us? And do you see what he's doing? He's not minimizing the challenges or the problems that you face, but he's magnifying the glory of God. And he's saying, in light of God, who is for you, what is really a threat against you? He's reminding me of Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is one of the passages in the Bible that's meant a great deal to me over the years. It's about a person who's on his way to Jerusalem. This is one of the psalms that we're going to be talking about in the class that's starting next, next week. And in this psalm, the person is journeying towards Jerusalem. And if you know anything about that ancient city, it's up on a hill. It's up on a mountain. And so for the person to get from where he is to get to where he's going, he's got to face the mountain. And mountains in ancient times were dangerous, difficult places to travel through. And so the author says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Basically saying, to get to where I want to go, I've got to face that. And it's scary, and it's terrifying, and it's intimidating. And then he says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That mountain is really scary but God made that mountain and God is bigger than that mountain. And that's where my help comes from. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans eight. What is against you this morning? What is against you? And is it any threat really for the creator and redeemer God? He's trying to help us not minimize our challenges, but you might say maximize our understanding of God's glory and his grace. And he says, if you can grasp that, if you can see that God is for you, the one who made all things and who came in Jesus to rescue us from our worst tendencies, if that God is for you, then absolutely nothing you face can be a real threat to you. Do you know that? I think for many of us, we'd say, yeah, we know that in our heads, but it hasn't sunk down into our hearts. There's a gap between what we know and what we experience. And may I gently say, as your pastor, one of the great spiritual challenges that people face, that many of you face, is that in any given moment, something else is more real to you than the love and the grace of God. Whether it's another person and the challenges that they're bringing Whether it's a situation at work or the reality of illness, those things, big as they are, have become bigger or more real to you than the reality that God is for you. And that's what plunges us into all kinds of spiritual confusion. But what Paul's showing us is that if we can grasp, if we can experience the bigness and the glory of this God who is for us, it changes everything. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a pastor in London in the 50s and 60s, I've been quoting him a bunch over the past few weeks because his sermons have been feeding my soul. He puts it this way listen to this quote, it's long but important. He says, The main trouble with us, I'm speaking of Christian people, is that we will not realize the truth about ourselves. You see, in this Christian life, there are many problems and difficulties. But more and more, it seems to me that most of our problems, if not all of them, arise simply from the fact that we fail to realize and to understand and to appreciate as we ought what is the real truth about us as Christian people. I've increasingly come to the conclusion that somehow or other, our trouble lies in the fact that we don't read the scriptures properly. That is, we tend to read them without meditating on them, without taking a firm grip of them and grasping them for ourselves. Realizing that these truths are truths about us. It seems perfectly clear that if we did that, our entire lives would be revolutionized. Indeed, our whole demeanor would be entirely changed. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, if you went out into the city, if, if you faced whatever you're facing right now with a rock solid confidence that God is for you, your whole life would be changed. Your whole demeanor would be revolutionized. Everything would be different. Give you a couple of examples. Look again at our passage, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's another truth or an implication of the Christian faith. God will never withhold something from you that is good. And yet we walk through our life wanting so many things and feeling like God's holding out because there is a person or an opportunity, something we desperately want, and we don't understand why we don't have it. But if you grasp that God is for you, if that becomes real to you, then you're able to say with John Newton, everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Because he's already given me his son. That's the logic of verse 32. If he's already given you the greatest gift, why would he withhold something lesser? This is just thinking out the reality or the implications of your faith. Or come with me for another example, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Justifies is an important word. It has to do with being declared innocent in a courtroom. And if you think about it, so much of our lives are spent in a kind of metaphorical courtroom. I'll put it this way. Ann Peterson is a sociologist and she's been writing about burnout among young people. And she says one of the leading causes, as you all know, for burnout is social media. And she points out, we all know that Instagram is fake. Like we all know that what you see on there isn't really real. And yet... We can't help but keep judging ourselves by what we see. We live in a constant tension between saying we know it's not real, and yet we need to present or post ourselves in such a way that we get affirmation and validation from the outside. Like someone sees us and likes us and says, You're good, you matter, you're accepted. We actually spend our entire lives in an exhausting and never-ending cycle of trying to find someone or something to say to us, you matter, you're accepted, you belong. And do you see what the passage says? It's God who justifies. That is in the only courtroom that actually matters and the only opinion that ultimately matters, God has said the verdict is already in, you're loved and accepted because of what Jesus has done if you believed that, I don't mean if you knew that in your head, but if you believed it in the core of your heart, do you realize that that would mean you could stop performing? Like you could live in the city free from the exhaustion of always having to perform, of always having to pretend, of always having to act like you're more put together and more accomplished and more polished than you actually are. And you'd be free. You see, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, the great problem of us is that we don't grasp the things that are already true of us. And that's the invitation here in Romans 8. God is for you. Do you see it? Do you believe that? Are you living into that reality? You say, well, I want to. How can I? How do I do that? How do I make these things more real to my heart? That's the second point of our sermon, and it's there in verse 34. You have a great high priest. Look with me at verse 34. It says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that was raised to life. And he is now at the right hand of God. And he's also interceding for us. That sentence is endlessly rich. It's way too dense for me to give it proper explanation in one short sermon. But let me just point out there's two aspects to what Paul's talking about here. On one hand, Jesus is our sacrifice. It says in the passage, Jesus died and more than that was raised to life. What that means is Jesus's death was a sacrificial substitutionary death in which he died in place of his people. That is, you have all kinds of sin, what the Bible calls selfishness or rebellion against God. But on the cross, Jesus died in your place. He literally took that on himself. He was paying your debt. The debt was too much for you to bear, and he went in your place. And then it says, and he was raised to life, which is basically heaven itself saying it was paid in full. The debt was paid because death couldn't hold him. So Jesus died, he was raised to life. That means your sin is forgiven. That's what Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry but the passage goes on. Look at what it says. Jesus died. More than that was raised to life. And now at this moment today is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for you. At this moment right now, Jesus is literally at God's right hand, the father's right hand, acting like your priest, interceding for you. We don't use the word intercede or intercession very much today, but actually the idea is all around us. If you're trying to buy a flat, if you're trying to lease a place, you know that a good broker is your intercessor, right? They're going to plead your case. They're going to do everything they can to get you into that place to live. That's what an intercessor does. There's someone who stands in between and pleads on your behalf, makes your case, fights for your interests. And Romans says, Paul's saying, Jesus at this moment is pleading for you, interceding for you, making a case on your behalf. And you say, well, why do I need him to do that? I mean, if he died, if he rose again, if sin is forgiven, what is he pleading for? And this is the answer, and this is so key. On the cross, Jesus finished the work of salvation. But your experience of his finished work is very much a work in progress, It's possible to believe in something or to know something that you haven't actually experienced or not experienced fully. I believe there's a place in the world called the Maldives. And I believe that a week-long holiday in one of those overwater bungalows would be amazing. But for me, it's just an idea. It's just a belief. But if you've been to the Maldives, you believe in it too, but your belief is different. It's an experienced one. You remember, you can feel that sea breeze blowing into your bungalow every morning. You remember walking out your front door and falling into crystal clear blue water. And you remember how sad you were when you had to leave. We both believe that that place exists, but our belief is profoundly different because one is just theoretical, one is felt. And Jesus right now at the right hand of God the Father is taking the truth of his finished work and he's pleading that it would become real to you. He's pleading and asking God the Father, may what I accomplished in my death and my rising become real to so-and-so today so that they live in the world as a person who knows they're justified. No charge brought against them is gonna stand. They will not be condemned. They're safe forever. And to help you live in that reality, And you say, well, is Jesus's intercession working? My my thought is this. If you ever have any moment of spiritual growth in your life, if you have even an inch of growth in your spiritual fervency for God, it's because of the intercession of Jesus. For example, if you came in today and there was something about the music, as we sang, that lifted your heart, Maybe you were feeling spiritually blah, maybe really weighed down by a trial, and something about the music just reached in and lifted you. The music team is great, but that's not why you felt that way. It's because Jesus is interceding for you. If anything that I ever say in a sermon is helpful to you, it's not because I'm eloquent. It's because Jesus right now is pleading at the Father's right hand, may it be real to him, may it be real to her. If you have a moment where someone slanders you, someone says something about you that they ought not to say, and instead of instantly reacting in kind, you just take a moment and you say, what does God want me to do? And you act charitably and you act kindly and you act forgivingly. You didn't do that because you're a good person. You did that because Jesus is interceding for you. You see, there's not a, one more. If you are able to say no to something, that you really want, but you know that having it is gonna numb your taste buds for the things of God, it's not because you have a lot of self-control, it's because Jesus is pleading for your interest. He's fighting for you beside the throne room of God. Every inch, every moment of spiritual growth in our life is because Jesus is interceding. And so this is the hope of the passage. God is for you, but we don't always live like it. But the good news, Jesus is praying that you would that you would live in this world as a person who is loved and knows that you're safe and fully accepted. And ultimately, what is Jesus praying for? What is he pleading for more than anything? It's that we might grasp verse 35, that there is a love from which you can never be separated. You might've noticed that in the passage, Paul asks five questions to help us understand the glory of the Christian faith. And the fifth one is the most important. That's why he saves it for last. Because this fifth question speaks to our deepest longings, the deepest desires of the human heart. I can put it this way. Luke Ferry is an expert in the history of philosophy, taught at the University of Paris for many years. And he spent a good chunk of his professional life surveying all the greatest philosophers throughout world history and the texts they produced. And as he looked at the history of philosophy, Eastern and Western. Ferry concludes, do you know what human beings want more than anything? Regardless of what you have as a religious background, regardless of where you're from, do you know what human beings want more than anything else? And he says to love and to be loved. The the deepest longing of the human heart is to show love and to experience love and to never be separated from that love. And I'm not talking about romantic dinner and candles kind of love. I'm talking about love where someone sees you and still loves you. Someone who says, I have your back no matter what. Someone who says, I'm with you and I'm for you, even when things get really hard. Like that kind of love. And Faree says, that's the thing that human beings want more than anything. He writes in his book, the thing that we want more than anything, the thing we most truly desire is to be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, and not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, not to have love die, and not to have love die on us. We want to live in love forever. That's what we want. And do you see what Paul is saying in verse 35 and following? There is a love from which, if you're a Christian, you will never be separated It's a love that gets wider and wider as you walk closer to eternity. And for the people of God, the future is a world of love in which you are loving and loved perfectly forever. And when you really press into that, you realize that if we knew that that were true, most, if not all, the aches of our hearts would be healed. That the future is love We're headed for it, and we're completely safe, and nothing can separate us from it. For example, look at verse 36. The passage says, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is quoting from Psalm 44. It's a psalm about a person who's suffering. And suffering has a way of making us question love, doesn't it? For many people, the experience of suffering makes us wonder, has God's love ran out on us? Because if I'm suffering, why is he not intervening? Why isn't, if he loves me and he has the power, why isn't he doing something to end my suffering? So suffering can make us wonder, is God's love running out? Is he really there? And Paul says, that's often the experience of the people of God. Is suffering a sign that love has run out? And look at verse 37. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then look at what does in verse 38. This is one of the most glorious verses in all the Bible. I'm just gonna read it again. Paul says, I'm convinced. That word convinced means I know by experience. I'm convinced. Not just I read it in a book, but I felt it in my heart. That neither death nor life, no angel nor demon, not the present or the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, there is a love from which you'll never be separated. There is a love that nothing in your future, nothing in your past, not even death itself, no illness, no financial reversal, no relational heartbreak. Even you yourself can't get in the way of this love. Nothing in all creation is gonna separate you from it. And you say, how is that possible? I mean, isn't love, while it's the most beautiful thing in the world, also the most fragile? Like, how can we know that there's a love we'll never lose? Come back to me at verse 36. Paul says, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered that is in suffering it feels like God has forsaken you but do you realize when Paul says we are just considered as sheep for the slaughter there was someone who was a truly innocent sufferer who wasn't just considered but actually became the sacrificial lamb why is it that in all your suffering you can know God's love will never break on me It's because Jesus Christ on the cross took on the ultimate suffering, bearing all the sin of his people on his own shoulders. And in that moment, he and he alone was able to cry out to God, his father, why have you forsaken me? Which is to say, why did your love run out on me at this moment? When I most needed your closeness, you feel the farthest away. Because on the cross, Jesus was actually experiencing separation from God, his father. Because he was dying in your place. To be a Christian means to know that on that day, God treated Jesus as you deserved. So that on this day, God could treat you as he deserved. And he who is perfect was separated from the love of God, his father. So that on this day, you never would be. And you can know that you've been brought in and enveloped in a love that's going to go on forever. Jesus was the truly innocent sufferer. And so how does the Holy Spirit help us to take these truths and make them real in our heart? How does Jesus' intercession make the truth of the Christian faith real to us? By pointing us to the cross. By helping us see Jesus. Jesus in whose love we are safe because his is a love that went through death and hell so we could be brought into God's family. And friends, I know even as I preach, I feel like my words are just inadequate. So we'll pray in just a minute and we're gonna to come to the Lord's table, which is a powerful way to experience this. But let me just close by saying, if you grasp this, if something of the power of the words in this passage grip your heart, Your life's changed because you become a person, not who doesn't face suffering. You're going to face tremendous suffering. Life's going to be much better and much harder than you expect. But you'll know there's a love from which I can never be separated. In the only courtroom that matters, I've already been accepted. I can stop trying to perform. Whatever challenges are in front of me, God is bigger because he's the maker and he's with me. It's going to change your life. So let's pray and let's ask for God to help us experience these truths as we look to Jesus and his death. Let's pray. Our God, as we come now to this table, as we feast on Jesus and his sacrifice for us, we ask, we plead with you that something of these truths would become more real to us today than they've ever been, that you would break through the noise, that you'd break through all the distractions, all the difficulties. And that in this moment, the finished work of Jesus would be the most real thing in our sight. And that we'd be healed and changed because of it. So feed us now as we come to this table. Change our lives through the work of Jesus, we pray, for his glory and for our good. Amen.